You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Zach Hansen. Zach is a product management expert and remote working enthusiast who has worked at several of the world's largest artificial intelligence companies, IBM Watson, Capital One, Wells Fargo, and Brightcove. As an entrepreneur, he is the co-founder of Implant Compare, the leading oral surgery live streaming education platform. Currently, he is the head of ML Product at Brightcove, an online video platform that helps customers experience the incredible potential of video. Zach holds a BA in political science from the College of Charleston and an MS in government analytics from the Johns Hopkins University. He and his wife and daughter live in rural Idaho, working toward a more sustainable lifestyle. Welcome to Absolute AI, Zach. Thanks, Melody. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you doing today? Where are you? I am doing very well, first off. Secondly, I am coming from a hotel in Lewiston, Idaho, which is not my hometown, but somewhere that I drove to last night. I'm actually here for unrelated business to Bright Cove. As a side gig, I am the chairman, actually, for the Rural Highway Commission in Idaho. And there is a meeting tonight with Fish and Game the Idaho fishing game to have an open public hearing. So I'm here to try to persuade them to give us a little bit of money for road repairs in all of the districts around Idaho. Very nice. And so this is this is just a side thing, but thank you for your service. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've only driven through Idaho one time, just the very skinny tip of it. I have to say the road was clear. So good job. It's going yeah. great. <laughs> well, well, those are the paved roads. So when you get off on some of the dirt roads, ah. that's where uh, the things, well, the rubber meets the unpaved road, I guess is the way to say that. But Well, that's where all the, the natural beauty is though, right? In the wild. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy here in Idaho the last three years, really, especially in the Boise metropolitan area. It has just been a magnet for folks a little pre-pandemic, but definitely post-pandemic to move to. Um, there's been, I think, maybe a 10x fold in population in the last three years. And yeah. as you mentioned, there's a lot of natural beauty. There's hiking, there's fishing, there's hunting, all within a very close proximity of Boise and some of the larger cities. Uh, and they take a toll on the roads when you have a lot more people, especially when they're dirt roads, people bringing their fun toys out, right? They're side by sides, their ATVs, dirt bikes, boats, everything. And uh, it takes a lot to maintain those dirt roads when you have that much traffic on them. And a lot of snow, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you know, for context, where I live, you know, I live in a town of 38 people year round. It's at the base of the Sawtooth Mountains, absolutely gorgeous. But there's one road in and one road out year round. Wow. Um, which means in the summertime, our highway district is clearing rock slides or mud slides. And in the wintertime, we're clearing avalanches. So it just takes a lot to keep it up. Well, again, I hope to go there. And when I drive along the road, I'll think of you and either 
say thank you or blame you for the rock slide that hasn't been cleared yet. <laughs> exactly. You have to sit in your car for 12 hours and you can call me and complain. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, your journey in the other part of your life in uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. My journey to both product management and machine learning AI is a little different, I would say. It's not the normal computer science or MBA approach to product or ML. As you mentioned in my bio, I was a political science undergrad, ultimately thought I wanted to be a lawyer, finally thought better of that before I went to law school, uh, and ended up working for the government for a few years overseas. And after doing a little public service, it was great. I came back stateside and I was like, you know what? I, I want to get into business. I want to learn more about technology in just that general kind of VC startup space. So as most people would do, they start a company. So with two of my good friends, we started a company out of Miami. Um, it was a play on rewards. So ultimately we had a little algorithm built to where if you went into a store, you would get a preset discount. And if you came in that next day, that discount would go up by a certain percentage came in the next day, it would keep going up to a preset maximum. And then we had a decay built in. So, you know, if Melody decides she doesn't want to go to the coffee shop the next day, it's going to, you know, notify you that your discount is dropping. So it was a gamification. You know, we thought it was the best idea ever. And we failed miserably. You know, I think we were probably <laughs> in market in 20 stores for less than a year. And like I said, there's no way to say it other than we failed as miserably as you could imagine, a new startup would fail. And we were kind of gobsmacked, right? We just, we weren't really sure why. We felt we had this great idea. We had a little bit of adoption, but, you know, we couldn't figure it out. So we all licked our wounds and we went into industry. I ultimately went to IBM where I started to do management consulting, which was a great learning grounds for me. I focused in a little bit more of a technical space. So doing data center recovery. So you could equate that to what happens when a meteor hits our data center. How do we get all of our systems that make us as a company back up and running? And I got to do that for a lot of different companies in the Bay Area, like PayPal, Williams-Sonoma, and a few others. And it's in that space as a consultant doing something unrelated to ML that I met some product managers. And when I met some product managers, specifically at IBM, and learned about what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, I thought, oh man, like had I or my other two co-founders known what product management was, maybe we would not have, you know, burnt our company to the ground as, you know, graphically as we did. And with that, I decided to kind of see if I could pursue a career there. And ultimately I did. So I was able to transition from a consultant role to a product management role at IBM and that's really where my product career and my ML career kicked off. That's great. Yeah. So you you landed IBM. You're, I mean, you're still young. So you're a super young whippersnapper, mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> an entrepreneur. How do you navigate with your uh, political science degree? I guess you you have some some background in the politics of a corporation, but how do you navigate through that and ingratiate yourself to smart people and and start to learn on the go and develop that into a, a career? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do a little bit with humbleness because everybody I met, I just wanted to learn, right? I 
I knew nothing about that industry. I knew nothing about product management. All I knew how to do was to fail, especially at building a company. <laughs> so I was really good at that, but I wanted to learn. I wanted to dissect the reasons why we had failed. So, you know, I say it now kind of tongue in cheek, but it's true. Like who knew you needed to go to market plan? Who knew you needed product market fit and a legitimate pricing strategy or to build out personas and understand who you're building a product for? I mean, yeah. those seem like fundamentals now, but I genuinely didn't know them at the time. So that journey was twofold when I went into product. It was A, just learn as much as possible, but I also got a role within Watson. So it mm. forced me to be a little more technical. So around that time, I went back and got a, a master's degree from Johns Hopkins. It was a little bit more technical. It was an MS and I started to learn to code some, learn R, learn Python. And again, just learned a few core fundamentals on the technology side that I also had a gap in. So then fast forward a little bit. Tell me about your new role at Brightcove. Yeah. What drew you to that company? A couple of different things. So as you mentioned, you know, if you do the fast forward button real quick, right? I, I hopped around and started to build out some ML platforms and systems at some big banks in a regulated industry. But also during that journey, I was the co-founder of a live streaming company, and we live stream oral and maxillofacial surgeries. Maxillofacial? What, what mm -hmm. does that mean? In the most simple terms, it, it's glorified carpentry. So it's when somebody might lose all of their teeth and have to get countersinks put in and fake implants. Whoa. So if you think about implant dentistry, um, yeah. mostly for cosmetic uh, reasons or for, you know, genetic reasons, you might have to have your teeth replaced. And we found a niche, you know, after, you know, now knowing about product management, we had personas built out and we understood there was a market to be served <laughs> for educational videos for continuing education credits in the dentistry, specifically the oral surgery uh, side of the house. And my other running joke is that when we started that company, I had a full set of hair <laughs> and what I learned over the six years that Implant Compare has been running is that video is amazing. It's it's difficult to pull off, meaning like live streaming, having the hardware you need, especially in a setting like oral surgery where there's no do-overs. Yeah. It's, it's challenging. But we were a little three-person shop and we were able to build out a pretty successful little company. But the whole time... I saw the avenues for AIML. I saw where there could be some really cool things that you might be able to do if you had either the data in a way that you could use it, if you had the team of ML engineers and data scientists, and that's just something we didn't have. So as I was looking for my next career move on the professional front, what drove me to Brightcove is, you know, they do video the right way. There's just so much opportunity in this space as well, especially in the AIML space, that I would just, I couldn't say no. That's great. So your role now is the head of ML product. So what are some of the initiatives that you are, are taking on and particularly excited about? We probably don't have all day, right? And like I said, video is just so rich in opportunity areas for us to focus on. It's exciting. And with Brightcove in particular, I mean, we service some huge customers. You can think of South by Southwest, Masterclass, just amazing companies who are doing great things with video. And on top of that, on any given week, we have over 900 million 
watchers of videos with 800 million videos being uploaded to our platform, which equates to a lot of petabytes of data every month. So it is just rich, uh, data rich environment. Um, And with that, we're kind of splitting ourselves across three pillars. Um, The first pillar is making sure that we have the right data platform to actually enable data scientists and ML engineers to build out some really cool cutting edge differentiating features. Uh, You can think of things like enhanced search. You could think of scene detection, uh, you know, sentiment analysis. The list goes on and on of the really cool ML stuff we could do, but it starts with a solid data platform. The second pillar that we're focusing on is around data governance. You know, at the end of the day, you know, security is everything. You know, we're responsible for a lot of data and a lot of you know, video that is you know, reaching so many people that we have to focus on making sure that we're meeting all the right regulations. So having model governance, making sure we're meeting GDPR, CCPA regulations. And that's another area that we're focusing on. And then lastly, it's analytics. Ultimately, ML can unlock a lot of different things that our customers, the folks who are building these great websites, building these great products for people that's empowered by video that connects people, is understanding how their viewers are interacting with a video, mm-hmm. how they can you know, potentially better target individuals, how they can monetize their content and build their brand even more. And those three pillars you know, of a strong data platform, the governance that goes along with it, coupled with the analytics where our customers can take action, are the areas that we're focused on as Brightcove to really move the needle forward. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. Wow, yeah, there's so much there. With the governance aspect, I, I assume Brightcove works internationally. So how are y'all navigating the different governance across different countries and in different languages? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of our recent hires in this group, as we're starting to build out, we're very nascent within Brightcove itself. I mean, I'll start by saying Brightcove has been around for 15 years. It's a okay. well-established public company. But as we start to focus on how we're going to differentiate with AIML, you know, we focused on hiring legal, right? So we have a great policy counterpart who's joined our team and she's helping us, you know, not only navigate those waters of say GDPR, CCPA, those different areas, but she's also helping us to build out our own model governance structure. Like how do we self-regulate ourselves, make sure that we have the traceability within our models to go back to true source data. And those are those different areas that we're starting to focus on too and build out robustly as we move forward. Yeah, that's great that you're that you brought that up uh, again with uh, explainable AI and responsible AI are, are such uh, huge and important topics right now. And again, it's been 
kind of the wild west in this area. You know, I feel like every company has been pretty ad hoc, even the people that I've talked to at IBM, which you think of as, you know, kind of this behemoth that's been, you know, in AI forever. And now there's a lot more questions that are coming up, and especially from the public as we move AI from you know, the theoretical into the practical and that it becomes a part of our everyday lives. So what are some of the things that you guys have talked about with uh, explainable or responsible AI? Yeah, well, I mean, you bring up a great point and it has in the past been quite a bit, you know, the Wild West, a lot of black box modeling. But to avoid that is exactly the reasons we're implementing those model governance policies, right? Mm -hmm. We, we want to make sure that we are putting our customers and our viewers first to make sure there is no you know, inherent bias built into any models. And yes, that starts with having a strong model governance policy, which is something that we are building, but it also goes back to just core fundamentals of data and data platforms and ultimately making sure that we have everything built from an infrastructure perspective in the right way to serve all of our customers and serve our internal customers, the data scientists and the machine learning engineers in a way that complies with all of those different worldwide regulations that we're held to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how do you, so you, you talked about data as like, you know, again, you guys have so much data there. How do you guys break that down functionally and turn that the petabytes of data into something that's actually actually useful and that that's not just the the one person viewing the video, but gaining a, a broader understanding from that? Yeah. And, you know, those are the building blocks we're building towards. So when I mentioned earlier about data, data platforms and fundamentals, I think that's where we're focused on right now. It's you know, we have all this data, you know, it's well housed, but you know, you'll see this a lot in enterprises, especially enterprises that you know, have legacy platforms that they're dealing with. You know, a lot of startups, a lot of younger companies are cloud native. They might have been born with AIML in mind, whereas some older companies, enterprises, et cetera, you know, they've been building things for decades. And oftentimes when something was built from a data warehouse perspective or a data platform perspective, it wasn't with AIML in mind. So one of the things that we're focused on is understanding, okay, this is you know a differentiator we want to go after. How do we make sure that we have the platform fundamentals in place to be able to enable model building? Um, because one of the big problems I've seen with enterprises in the past, again, that might have legacy systems, is you'll hire data scientists and you'll want to build out really cool models that might serve your customers or, you know, enable a feature that everybody's been wanting for years. Mm -hmm. But what you end up with is a data hunter, not a data scientist, because they're having to look across all sorts of systems. Maybe there's not a centralized data lake to be able to start even doing the feature engineering to build a model and then deliver it. Um, so we're focused on making sure that we have, you know, those fundamentals in place to where we're not enabling data hunters, but we're enabling data scientists and ML engineers to build out some of these really cool features that we're looking forward to rolling out over the next few years. That's great. Yeah, I feel like that's great advice for business leaders, especially within enterprise, because I've seen that 
with our customers. I've seen that with friends, companies, um, that, that transition can be, can be really tough. Even as somebody who has my own ad hoc file system, <laughs> you know, trying to find something when I haven't been super organized in the first place and had something to start off with. It always goes back to fundamentals. Absolutely. So how can companies empower themselves to scale and to scale in their AI operations? Back, yeah. you know, with the fundamentals in mind. <laughs> yeah, well, with fundamentals in place, yes. I yeah. think one of the ways is to have a very good gating process with AI ML. So let's assume you have the right data platforms in place, and then you want to just start to build models, right? You know, all these machine learning algorithms are going to solve all the problems, and they're going to make tons of money, and it's going to make customers happy. It's exciting. But there's another fundamental you just can't lose sight of, and that's product management as it relates to ML or data platforms. Like You do still have to understand like what your customers' pain points are. What are your customers really going after? Because usually when you set up, say, an innovation lab or an AI ML wing, you'll have lines of business coming to you saying, hey, you know, I've got this great idea. I think ML could solve it. And the answer might be, yes, it could but you still have to go through the same process of understanding what the ROI is. What is the business value we're driving for here? What is it that we're solving for the customer? And can this be solved? Like maybe with some simple rules versus a complex algorithm. And oftentimes you'll be surprised when you really go through that kind of design thinking process with any use case that maybe ML is not the right answer here. Mm. And then if it is, that's fantastic. Yeah. And you can keep going through the process and then enable your data scientists to go you know, find the data that they need, hopefully in a very easy, intuitive way with a very clean, well-annotated data platform. Sure. But you still go through the same fundamentals. So I think that's probably my biggest advice is no matter what you're doing, data platforms, product management, get back to fundamentals and follow those same paths and you'll find success. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about design thinking because in our conversations, you've brought that up a few times. What about design thinking? What are the attributes of design thinking that you really lean on when you're, mm -hmm. when you're moving forward? And do you guys use any agile methodologies? Is that kind of intertwined there as well? They're all kind of intertwined, but going back to the origin story, right, of myself. It was failed at a company, ultimately went to a company that taught me about product management. And IBM did a great job at really doubling down on design thinking. You know, mm -hmm. They would send folks to the design school in Stanford. You know, They would even focus on other elements like improv class to help you become a better product manager. Oh, fun. Um, yeah, there, there's just so many different elements to it. But to answer your question, what really struck me about design thinking is the customer obsession. Like at the end of the day, you're building something for somebody else. And it's very easy to put your own biases into the idea, like especially if it's your own idea, just like with my first company, like we thought it was the best idea ever, but it wasn't serving anybody mm -hmm. or not at least in a meaningful way that they would want to pay for it over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So design thinking is about that customer obsession. And I think bringing that into everything you do 
even in life, it's really powerful to just think critically, put yourself in someone else's shoes to understand how you can serve them. You know, whether that's building a product, being a good neighbor, it really is applicable everywhere. Uh, and it's something that I lean on heavily, you know, inside and outside of work. That's great. So I read the book that you wrote, uh, I think you published it in 2017, The Art of Being Artificially Intelligent, A Millennial's Guide to Faking It Till You Make It. And in there, you have some career advice and, and traits that you talk about developing. And some of those traits that you talked about were self-reliance, mental cadence, grit, mentorship, knowing your value, which I thought was really interesting, ongoing education, and then terminal entrepreneurship. And talk to me a little bit about terminal entrepreneurship. You've talked about some of your ventures. Talk to me about that term and, and what it means and, and how that's influenced your career. Yeah, it ties into one of the former chapters you mentioned about always learning, but terminal entrepreneurship was a term that my co-founder and implant compare coined. It was just the idea that, you know, once you're an entrepreneur, like, you know, some people might argue it's just ingrained, like you maybe are, have a higher risk tolerance. You want to build things, you want to serve people, but it's not something you kind of do and stop. It's hmm. forever. So it's a, it's a terminal <laughs> affliction where you're always thinking about how to better things, build better products, and ultimately just serve people, whether that's personally, as I, I, I guess as an addendum to that book now that it's been several years and, you know, my personal life has changed. I'm a father now. There's all sorts of different areas of my life that have grown and evolved. I would say that that terminal entrepreneurship extends outside of just work. Like it can extend into your personal life too. It's just desire to always improve things ultimately. Yeah, the other trait that I found super interesting that I plan to do the exercises in the back was the mental cadence, because you sort of change the idea of achieving any goal becomes a matter of, of time, a question of when some mm -hmm. achieving that goal will happen rather than if that goal will happen. And I, I just loved that. And thinking about looking at your own process, your own cadence, like you said, mental cadence and pursuing things at the pace that you take. And so what's something that you have uh, been calibrating? And I know you've started Oof. a new job, but how are you calibrating and moving forward to achieve some of those longer term goals? That's a great question. First off, thank you for the compliments on the book. And, you know, that that was something that resonated with me so much was just figuring out what my mental cadence is to achieve different things and maybe giving an applicable uh, blueprint for people to follow, too. But in thinking about that, for me, we have such a robust agenda at Bright Cove. Like we are doubling down on data, AIML. We have you know, a great team in place. We're hiring out more great people. So there's a plug to go check out the, uh, <laughs> the, the job site <laughs> yeah. for, for Bright Cove. And, you know, for me, it, it's how do we, again, serve our customers in a way. And I think calibrating to how long it's going to take us to get there is what I'm working on now. Like I mm. said, we have fundamentals that we have to make sure that are in place, making sure that our data platform, data pipelining is tip-top shape so that we're hiring data scientists, not data hunters. And then we're able to quickly action on the feature set that we want to deliver for our customers 
from an ML and analytics standpoint. That's great. So you've been a remote worker employee for your entire professional career, which is pretty unique. Most of us started around March, April of 2020. (laughs) So what are some of the practices that you've honed to successfully work remotely and how has technology helped or hindered in that process? Yeah, I mean, I... I can't say enough about technology and, you know, being thankful for the era that I was able to start my professional career because I've evolved, right? I I started off in big cities and slowly, you know, moved down the line to where now I live really in a cabin in the wilderness (laughs) with 30 people, no grocery store, no gas station, and I'm still able to do my job effectively. But to answer your question, Yes, I've always been a remote worker, but even that remote work has evolved, and especially over the last two years, because when I first started to be a remote worker, it was to support my ex-wife, whose job required us to move every eight months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was more of a forcing function than you know necessarily a desire to be remote, but I formed a lot of practices around that because I was you know, forced into it. But one of the things that I always talk with people is I was remote. But I had a bag and I would travel. And the amount of airline miles I racked up over you know, seven or eight years is unbelievable. I would be you know, going in for different stand-ups. I usually had teams split across a couple different countries and states and different times. So I was traveling constantly, which, you know, it was great that I could live where I wanted to live. But I'll be honest, over the last two years, where now it has become, you know, domestically in the U.S., quite common for us to be working from home that even in the last two years, things have just changed for me. But one thing that has been constant across that whole journey is keeping very rigid and disciplined practices, especially now that we're at home and I'm not on a plane very much, which means I start my day early. Uh, Usually my wife and I wake up around 4.30 or 5. That is early. Yeah. Yeah, especially with a seven month old. But We get up before she wakes up, which has been just absolutely phenomenal the past two months. But we get up before she wakes up. We both get our workout in. You know, we'll either Peloton or we'll, you know, do a quick workout in our little gym. And that really just centers us and sets us for the day. And with that, like, kind of practice. Now, whether that's like a yoga, meditation, you know, thinking, whatever it is that works for you as an individual, I would encourage. But just having something rigid and disciplined that you can rely on Mm. to get up and just set yourself up for success for the day, no matter where you're at, whether that's in an office, whether that's at home, whether that's on a plane, just keeping that practice will make a big difference. And, you know, at least for me, my own personal satisfaction with being a remote worker. That's fabulous advice. So on the one hand, you're in this like super duper high tech career, artificial intelligence, so cutting edge. And then on the other hand, I've read you describe your day to day life as consisting of chopping wood, cooking, tending to animals. You're living in this very remote area, trying to figure out ways to live a more healthy and sustainable lifestyle. How do you see these kind of seemingly disparate interests or pursuits complement each other? Yeah, it's it's definitely a dichotomy. You know, I've lived in Austin, Texas before. I've lived in New York. I've lived in a lot of these places. And, and this is for me personally, but li- like working in a 
high tech role. You know, it's AI, ML, and you know, you have quantum computing. You have other areas that are desirable and very cutting edge. And for me, also living in a very high frequency city, I was never able to kind of turn off my brain. It was just mm. constant stimulation. And you know, for me, I don't have social media. I don't have a TV in my home. I, I literally just felt like I needed to kind of unplug. Like when work's over, I try to unplug. I try to get out in the woods. And you know, part of that was reading a, a short story from 1909. Uh, I'm not going to remember the author's name, but I'll remember the title. It's called When the Machine Stops. Um, machine Stops. When the Great Machine Stops. Yeah, you can look it up. Um, you can get the PDF. It's a short story. It's 24 pages long. But it's this gentleman who predicted all these different things. And it was a regression from nature. So he predicted like the internet, air travel, and you know, just being a very interconnected people, like leveraging something similar to FaceTime. But it ultimately took people away from face to face where this machine would just provide everything for them. And to me, that was a little scary. So I, I wanted to just make sure that I don't lose that connection with nature, with where my food comes from, with, you know, how we raise our daughter, you know, making sure that she's got plenty of fresh air and that she's learning to do some fun things like ski and snowmobile and hike and, you know, having those at our door is amazing. And and for me in the past, living in a city, I would still try to find those things. But at the end of a work day, if you have to drive 30 minutes to get outside, to go do a hike, it, it burns into that productivity. So, you know, again, a personal choice. I just live somewhere where when work's over, I can walk out the back door and I'm disconnected. No cell You're phone service. It. Yep. You know, wild animals everywhere. <laughs> and it's it's exciting. It's scary sometimes, but it's exciting. Well, that's awesome. So speaking of short stories, if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2041, what would the world look like and have the robots taken over? Ooh, that's a good question. I hope the robots haven't taken over. And if they have, I hope they're nice to me because I try to be friendly to every robot I meet. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's just many. in case. That's really... Yeah, just in case. <laughs> I want them to remember me as the guy who is really nice to them. Right. That is a difficult question. I think, well, A, I do know that video will be connecting us at a even better rate, right? I think it's going to be the ultimate form of communication that it already is, but we'll find ways to make that more interactive. You know, you mentioned at some point, you know, how do you like maybe involve interactivity kind of like with Snapchat type of filters with video? I think those will become more and more ingrained. You know, maybe we'll have some really cool holographic screens that are delivering video that we can uh, interact with and you can ball dance with a partner in Russia if you wanted to. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think those kinds of cool things with maybe some like haptic feedback suits, you know, you could really interact with people anywhere in the world. But yeah, I guess that's kind of my answer to that. It, it, honestly, that is a tough question because I haven't given that much thought. That's all right. I try to try to keep my guests on their toes. You did a great job. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> answer. 
So let's wrap up with some calls to action. Uh, how can people reach out or, or learn more about you? You said you're not on social media, but you do have a website. So yep. uh, yeah. Yeah. If people want to find out more about me, you can visit www.zacharyhanson.me. I do have a LinkedIn, so you can check me out on LinkedIn as well. So I guess I do have social media. It's not fully true. And then, you know, if you're looking for a video solution, whether you're a you know, small mom and pop shop, whether you're a large enterprise, go check out brightcove.com. We're doing a lot of really cool things, supporting a lot of great companies. And we'd love to show you what we can do. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Zach. It was a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Melody. It was a pleasure for me as well. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.